Section 51 of Old Rail Fence Corners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. Old Rail Fence Corners. Edited by Lucy Leavenworth Wilder Morris. Mary Sherard Phillips, 1854. At the time of the Indian Massacre in Minnesota, August 1862, John Otherday, who was married to a white woman, sent word to the agent's wife to leave the agency within an hour. This was at half past nine at night. The trouble began at a small store a short distance from the agent's house. The shooting and fighting could be heard from the house. Other day, with a party of sixty-two refugees, instead of taking them to the fort, had them ford the Minnesota River and pass through the wild country, avoiding the main traveled roads. He was never with them, would be seen in the distance on a hill to the right, and then in the opposite direction. They came to the river at Carver, where they recrossed, then to Shakopee, their old home where I saw them. When Major Galbraith was given the office of Indian agent at Yellow Medicine, most of his employees went with him. Mrs. Galbraith and her three children, and Miss Charles, a teacher, went in a one-horse buggy. They took this at the time of the outbreak, and were an other day's party. Part of the time they walked, and let others ride to rest them. This little band of fugitives could make only a few miles in twenty-four hours. The Indians did not follow them, as they thought they would go to the fort, and then they would attack them as they neared the fort. Mrs. Galbraith and children came to father's house. They were a sorrowful-looking band. Dr. Wakefield and Major Galbraith were at the fort. The women told us this story. The day before the outbreak, Mrs. Wakefield and her two children, with George Gleason, started for Fort Ridgely. They saw some Indians coming. Mrs. Wakefield said, I am afraid. But Gleason said, They are our own Shakopee Indians. They will not hurt us. Then as soon as they passed, they shot Gleason in the back, and he fell out of the buggy, dead. They took Mrs. Wakefield and the children captives. She was saved by one Indian taking her as his squaw. For two days he had them hid in a straw stack. Mother asked Mrs. Galbraith if she saved any of her silver. She replied, When life is at stake, that is all you think of. When Colonel Sibley and his men came to Shakopee, they came mostly by boat. They pressed into service all the horses and wagons in town to transport them to the seat of the Indian War. There was only one old white horse left. That belonged to Dr. Weiser. The little antelope that passed down the Minnesota did not have room for one more. The town was packed with refugees. Every house had all it could shelter. The women did what they could to help the ones that had come there for shelter and safety, and carried them provisions and clothes. We had refugees from Henderson, Belle Plaine, St. Peter, Glencoe, and all through the country, fleeing from the Indians. 
The Faribault house, covered with siding, is still standing. Jacques Pactan, or Shakopee in English, was named after Shakopee Indian chief, Little Six, who with his band had a village just across the river. He died and was buried there in the fifties. I saw the dead body in the winter, which they had elevated on a platform, held up by four slender poles, about eight feet high. In the trees near the camp, they had something that looked like a closed umbrella. They had a number of these to drive away the evil spirits. The Sioux counted their money by dimes, which they called Kosh Poppy. Then they counted up to ten. Wancha, Nopa, Yam Annie, Tupa, Zota, Shakopi, Shako, Shakando, Nepchunk, Wix Chimney. Then these numerals would be used as Wancha Kosh Poppy, no pa kosh papi up to wix chimney kosh papi which would be one dollar i saw some squaws the day after a battle mourning they had lost relatives they sat on the ground and were moaning and rocking their bodies back and forth the squaws always carried a butcher knife in their belts they took the point of the knife and cut the skin of their legs from the knees down to the foot just enough so it would bleed and a few drops trickled down these gashes. There were three or four of these squaws. In 1854, 1,500 Winnebago Indians came up the Minnesota River to Shakopee, in their birch bark and dugout canoes, which lined the shore. They were on the way to their new agency. Their agent was to meet them at Shakopee, with their government money and rations. He failed to come on the day appointed. They waited several days for him, and were angry at the delay. The citizens found the Indians were being supplied with fire-water, and for their own safety they hunted for it. They found three barrels of it in the kitchen of a dwelling. They took it, and broke in the barrel heads, and flooded the kitchen. The agent came that evening, gave the Indians their money and rations, so they went on in their canoes early the next morning. I saw them off. I was in the canoes with some of them. They gave me beads and the little tin earrings, which they used by the dozens as ornaments. The river was filled with their canoes, but their ponies and other heavy baggage went on land. The Winnebagoes gave a money dance in front of the hotel. Their tom-tom music was on the porch. They formed in a semicircle. They were clad in breech-clouts, with their naked bodies painted in all the colors of the rainbow put on in the most grotesque figures imaginable. They would sing and dance to their music, pick up the money that had been thrown them, give their Indian war-whoops and yells, then fall back to form the semicircle and dance up again. This was an exciting scene with the side and back scenery made up of hundreds of live and almost naked redskins. I saw one scalp dance by the Sioux. They had a fresh scalp, said to be off a Chippewa chief. It was stretched on a sort of hoop, formed by a green twig or limb. It was all very weird. This was in 54. The Indians enjoyed frightening the white women. They often found them alone in their homes. They were always hungry, would demand something to eat, and would take anything that pleased their fancy. My mother, Mrs. Sherard, was very much afraid of the Indians. Once, one of the braves shook his tomahawk at her through a window. I have seen a dog train in St. Paul, 
loaded with furs from the Hudson Bay Fur Company. End of section fifty one. Recording by Greg Giordano. Newport Ritchie, Florida.